All right, well, this morning, we are going to be continuing in our study through the Gospel of John. And for this Sunday and next, we'll be in John 19. And then at that Sunday after that, we're, we'll be wrapping up our study through the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday, appropriately enough, with his post-resurrection appearances. It's almost like I mapped it out this way, <laughs> which honestly I didn't, just kind of a serendipitous. Uh, but our study of the Gospel of John brings us this morning to the most important event in the history of the world. Uh, and there's no hyperbole in that statement. This is the highest summit of significance. There is no day greater and more significant in the history of the created world than the day that we read about here, the day that Jesus was crucified. Jesus is a redeemer God, which is to say that he took what was crooked and wrong and wicked and broken and unjust, and he somehow, in his person, on the cross, redeemed all those things and made peace with them. It was wrong to murder Jesus. There is no other way to paint it. It was wrong. But by that act of wickedness, we were made right. It was wrong, but we were made right. It was wicked, but by that act of wickedness, we were made righteous. It was through a horrible miscarriage of justice that we were justified. It was through an act of wrath and violence that we found comfort and peace. We are about to read words that are touched with a profound weight, significance, and meaning. For these words describe the moment when Jesus, holy, 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 became sin and took our place under the wrath of God. This is the moment to which all of our hopes are attached. And this is the central load-bearing truth of Christianity. There are many things that Christianity claims to be true, but if you kick them out, nothing really is damaged. But this is a load-bearing pillar that we're going to lean up against this morning. Everything that matters is attached to this. Beginning in verse 16 of John 19, we read, So he, that being Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, 
but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. It's interesting to me that John does not describe the actual act of crucifixion with any detail. He says simply in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, and he moves on. And in those few words, John is referencing one of the most horrific and painful ways a human being can die. As a means of execution, crucifixion was intended to serve as a draconian warning to the public. Anyone who witnessed a crucifixion would think twice about committing a crime that could end with them being crucified, and that was the intent of the Romans. This was a manner of execution designed to instill fear in anybody who would think about violating the law. This is what horrible things await you if you break the law. That's what crucifixion was meant to say. It was designed to cause a death that was excruciatingly slow, painful, and horrifyingly public. Dr. C. Truman Davis, back in the 1960s, he was a medical doctor who had studied the Roman practice of crucifixion extensively, and who was also uh, a trained medical doctor. He wrote the following description of what would happen to a human being as they were being crucified. With the beam laid on the ground, Jesus would have been laid on top of it with his shoulders pressed against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post, and the title, Titulus, reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet so extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones through the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, 
searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain, and Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth interspace between the ribs, upward, through the pericardium, and into the heart. And immediately there came out blood and water. And we therefore, according to C. Truman Davis, have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Now that is a graphic and awful depiction of what it is like physically to be crucified. Uh, but fellow Christian, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I don't think that was the worst part for Jesus. It's just the part that our experience prepares us to understand or appreciate. Our experience as fallen human beings living in the midst of a fallen world helps us imagine the sensation of excruciating physical pain. But our experience as fallen human beings has not equipped us to grasp in our imagination how horrific it was for Jesus, the holy, holy, holy God, to become sin in our place. Not just to take our sin onto him, but according to 2 Corinthians 5, he actually became sin. And for he who had never known in all of his eternal existence a single moment of separation from the Father to suddenly, or disagreement with the Father, to suddenly become cut off and afflicted. Brothers and sisters, do you have any idea how much you are loved? The cross is an incredibly powerful statement about how much your God loves you. The love of Jesus that is displayed on the cross is made all the more poignant by the fact that it was something Jesus did of his own free will. Jesus' coming into the world was not the beginning of a life, but rather the beginning of his deliberate moment, movement towards this moment. The birth in Bethlehem was his deliberate movement towards the cross. And all of his life has been brought, all of his short earthly life has been bringing him to this moment. He came here for this purpose. Back in our study of John 10, we studied these words of Jesus. On that particular morning, we were talking about the sovereignty of God. 
And Jesus says in John 10, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. On several occasions so far in our journey through John, we have paused to point out and celebrate God's sovereignty. John emphasizes strongly in his gospel account the perfect sovereignty of God over all things. And by sovereignty, as we talked about on that morning when we studied John 10, I mean two things simultaneously. One, Jesus exists in perfect freedom, exercising control and dominion over all things. So he is perfectly free. And two, he himself is controlled by nothing. He has both the right and the means to do whatever he wills according to his own good pleasure. And nobody and nothing can limit, thwart, or even delay the doing of his will. He is supreme in power and authority. There are no limiting factors to his rule and agency. This is what it means to describe Jesus as sovereign. And it is absolutely amazing that in his perfect sovereignty, his perfect freedom, Jesus chose the cross, that he chose us. Here in chapter 19, it's especially important to be reminded of the sovereignty of God precisely because to all outward appearances, Jesus does not look free and in control. To the natural eyes of men who looked on him, he looked bound, controlled, and acted upon. But peppered throughout this chapter, even this chapter, when he looks least sovereign, there are reminders to us. God wants us to know that all of this is part of the plan. Back in August, we spent some time studying the fifth chapter of John's gospel, in which Jesus was quoted as saying, you search the scriptures, he's speaking to the Jewish religious authorities, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. How exactly did the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about Jesus? Well, in addition to some other significant ways we could point to, the Old Testament points us to Jesus by having all of these prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, over 300 of them, in fact, and which Jesus perfectly fulfilled over the course of his earthly ministry. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, feature the fulfillment of those prophecies prominently in their efforts to authenticate Jesus as the Savior of the world. And this is probably what Jesus meant when he said, the scriptures bear witness about me. If you'd go back and look at the prophecies, you would see that I am the one who God foretold as the Savior of the world. It is really and truly because of the Old Testament that we believe in the Jesus that we encounter in the New Testament. And as we come to the 19th chapter of John, our eyewitness guide to the life and ministry of Jesus, John, points out a number of things that happened at the crucifixion that fulfilled Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And one of them is this business of them casting lots for his clothes. 
And it says there in John 19, 24, that this was to fulfill the scripture. And this is a quote uh, from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And there's a couple of other times here in the chapter. I didn't read them. We're going to get to them next week, perhaps, um, God willing. But in John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And that's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, where it says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Or down in verses 36 and 37, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And uh, we didn't get to this part in our reading, but you may already be aware that as the day was dragging on, the legionnaires became impatient. They wanted to get this show on the road. They had other things to do. And so it was their practice, if somebody was still lingering on the cross alive, to come and break their legs so they had to slump. And it was a faster death by asphyxiation. They were no longer able to pull themselves up for enough time to catch a catch enough air so they would break their legs but according to the old testament that would make an animal an unfit animal for sacrifice for the atonement of sins and so in the old testament you shall not break any of its bones exodus 12 46 numbers 9 12 nor break any of its bones so in order to be a suitable sacrifice you had to be unblemished no breaking of the bones and as far as the piercing goes, uh, the piercing of Jesus with the spear in Zechariah 12:10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So all of those things were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. God speaks in advance through his prophets about what is going to come. And I think this is a significant thing to note because, again, it does highlight the sovereignty of God. Exactly at this moment when things look most out of control, Jesus looks passive, controlled, acted upon, bound, he is fully sovereign in this moment. He is just unbelievably choosing those things and thereby choosing us, taking our place there. And one, I think it's always so helpful to dwell upon and meditate on the sovereignty of God in moments like this because very often when we look on the world today that we live in, doesn't it feel out of control? Doesn't it feel like everything is just careening wildly towards something that's awful sometimes? <laughs> Maybe I'm alone in that, but sometimes I get that feeling. And it's really important to know that God is not asleep at the switch. He has his purposes in all things, and they are good. Again, one of the statements we've been made, making over the course of our study through the Gospel of John is that nothing can move against the church or Jesus unless God wills it. And if God wills it, it must be for our good, our eternal happiness. And so we know these things. God is completely in control. By the way, he's made prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. And here again, we see a God who is a promise-keeping, prophecy-fulfilling kind of a God. And so we can look with excitement on those prophecies that the Bible contains 
which have yet to be fully realized. And I think sometime we'll get around to uh, thinking deeply about those as well. But for right now, let's just move on. Uh, There's one thing here I want to, in closing, spend our time thinking about. And that's this business of Jesus' clothes. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, it says, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. We know from these verses that it was probably a a detachment of about four men who actually did the job of crucifixion. It says that they divided his garments into four parts, And so we also know that Jesus had on his person five articles of clothing. The Bible does not exactly describe what those items were, but most probably he had uh, some kind of a head covering, which was traditional at that time for men to wear. He probably had something on his feet, sandals, most likely. He probably had on a robe of some, like an outer garment, as well as a sash or belt of some kind, covering what the Bible here describes as his tunic, which is the, the garment closest to his body. And now those four were distributed. This is part of their, uh, I guess, a very macabre sort of a perk of the job, that you get the clothes of the person who's dead. But the fifth garment, and there's only four of them, and there's five articles of clothing, and any of you who have multiple kids are aware of this conundrum. What do we do with this one? And it's also not want something that can be cut up because it is a seamless garment. It was woven from top to bottom as a unified whole. So if you cut it up, the whole thing will unravel. It's not even useful as cloth if you divide it up in that way. So very with great rationale, with reasoning, they say, well, let's not destroy the garment. Let's cast lots for it. And this was all to fulfill the scripture. But in this, isn't there a... There's just a lot to grab your attention. For example, if they're um, casting lots for his garments, that means Jesus is what? He is naked. He is completely nude on the cross. And I only point that out because In Hebrews 4.13, it says this, and no, this is speaking about the end, uh, when we stand before the judge. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In this moment, Jesus is exposed. Have you, have you ever, in a moment of sin, here's something I think about sin. Most sins begin with the thought, no one will ever know. And they end with nobody can ever know. (laughs) Right? That's the the beginning line and the end line between which you sin. No one will ever know, so I can get away with it. And then no one can ever know. No one must ever know. What is there in your past that if it were to play out on this screen in front of all your church friends would be the most mortifying thing? the most ridiculous, awful, shameful, embarrassing thing, and we all have them. 
Jesus, naked on the cross, is him being exposed so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. The other thing is, if I was a, uh, if I was a filmmaker and I was doing a, a film of Jesus' life, I am not a filmmaker, I'm not even much of a movie buff, but if I was trying to make a film and I came to this moment where they're casting lots for the garments, I would have like a montage of all the things Jesus said about clothing, <laughs> which is interesting, and all the things that happened to his clothing. For example, I might have Jesus, um, as they're casting lights, I might have a voiceover of Jesus saying, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What a fascinating thing to think about as Jesus hangs there naked and the soldiers cast lots for his clothes. What does it mean that the one who said God will clothe you allowed himself to be hung naked? Or what about Luke 8, 4, 43 through 48? There's this montage at the end of my movie, I imagine, and as they're casting lots for the tunic, there is a scene of the woman with the flow of blood reaching out to touch the hem of the very garment that these soldiers are grabbing a hold of. How fascinating that one of those soldiers was going to wear Jesus' clothes. He was going to walk through Jerusalem in the very garment that the woman had touched, but there's no power in it anymore. All the power was in Jesus, not in the clothes, but even just in touching the hem of his garment, she was healed. What a powerful thought. What a powerful thought, too, that this is all that Jesus has in the world for possessions. They are, easy, they are able to easily divide his earthly belongings. The God of the universe, <laughs> rich beyond measure. Into the world you came naked, and naked you depart from it. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on the earth, where soldiers cast lots for the stuff. Or what about in Matthew 25, where Jesus was explaining about the end of times, when he was going to come back, and he was going to divide humanity to the right and to the left, like sheep and goats. And he was going to say to the ones on his right, I was naked and you clothed me. Wow. And then there's the words from Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is a beautiful gospel picture of what is happening in this moment. The cross is all about the uh, most incredibly, wonderfully unfair transaction in the history of the world. <laughs> God is so much more than just. He is just. And the cross is a symbol of that. 
God, in order to be perfect in his attributes, had to punish sin. But aren't you glad, don't you delight in and celebrate the fact that he isn't just a God of justice and wrath. He is also a God of grace and mercy. And in the transaction that took place on the cross, Jesus took our nakedness, our poverty, our need, our sin. He took all of that, and he gave us his reward. We were naked with nothing but the rags of our sinfulness to cover our shame. But God allowed himself to be shamefully displayed naked on the cross that we could be dressed richly in the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. And perhaps this morning you are here with us or you're watching at home on the internet and you have never fully understood before why the Christians celebrate the cross. It is the ugliest, most beautiful thing I know. That's what the cross is. It's ugly, but it is beautiful if we understand what's happening in this moment. Christianity, the gospel, how Jesus saves sinners, is separate and distinct from all other religious schemes on planet Earth. And it is separated by this idea of grace. Grace is a concept unique to Christians. It's unique to the gospel. You can find no other religion that has grace at the center of it. All religions on planet Earth boil down to this idea. God has what we need, and we must do business with him in order to get it. And so we, the onus is on man. You have to jump through hoops. You have to meet requirements. You have to do A, B, C, D, and E, and then God will be obligated because you met all of those standards to give you what you want. And so religion boils down to getting something you want from a God that you don't necessarily. If you could get it from somewhere else, you would. If you could buy it, you would pay. But Christianity is separate and distinct. It is entirely unique from the religions on the earth. And that how we are saved is not by what we, have, what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. We don't get what we deserve in Christianity. To get what we deserve is to be hung naked on a cross, exposed, judged, wrath poured out. That's what we deserve. But the gospel is the amazing truth that God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us grace. He poured out what we deserve on Jesus, and we get a reward that we could never deserve. This is amazing. Amazing truth. And it's here vividly displayed, I think, in this moment where they cast lots for his garments. One, I, I think it's really great that the garments weren't given to his family because we know humanity well enough to know what would have become of those garments. It would have become a cherished keepsake, and then it would have become a relic, and then it would have become something that the church worshiped, right? This is what tends to happen. Uh, remember the scene in the, uh, in the Old Testament when 
the rod that was built with the snake on top that was given by God to the Israelites to save them from the poisonous serpents, they had to destroy it. Why? Because the people had started to worship it. (laughs) And so it's really good that God dispensed of these last earthly belongings of Jesus in this way because it took away the potential that even well-intentioned Christians have of going down this path to worshiping objects. And so we see in this moment the true nature of religion even, that we worship in spirit and in truth. Our worship doesn't focus on a physical material, but on a God that is alive and well and living even now in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We see in this an amazing picture of the power of God because of that woman who reached out and touched even the hem of the garment was healed. We know that story from Luke 8. But here we see that the garments are just a sack of rags without Jesus to fill them. And this is a picture, too, of church without Jesus at the center of it. If Jesus does not fill and animate and govern our life as a church family it becomes very empty, just a husk. There's a form of godliness denying its power. That's what results. And again, we see this amazing truth that in Jesus' death on the cross, he clothed us in his righteousness. I love how it says it there in Isaiah 61. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We are naked with nothing but the rags of our sinfulness to cover our shame. But God has dressed us richly in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, maybe there is somebody who has just listened into this um, brief exploration of your word. And Father, they are seeing and understanding Jesus and his significance in a new way, a fresh way. But they don't know what to do about that now. Father, I pray that they would uh, receive the free gift of salvation. God, I pray that in this moment, as they have come to an understanding that the gospel is not something that human beings do, It's it's a celebration of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That they would just receive by faith the free gift of salvation through Jesus. Father, we know from your word that all human beings have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We also know, Lord, that the wages of sin is death. A wage is something we earn and deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6, 23. Father, thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but giving us a gift. Father, we know that we cannot clean ourselves up to make ourselves more worthy of that gift. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, we were sinners, we were far off, we were cut off, helpless and hopeless and dirty when you did what you did for us. And Father, we embrace with hope the truth of Romans 8, 1, that those who have put their trust in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Father, when we come to you, we don't, we don't come expecting wrath or judgment or a lecture. God, we get love and grace. And Father, we know from your word that it says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 9. And so, Father, if there is one out there who has learned today of the way of salvation, God, I pray that they would call on the name of the Lord, that they would put their trust in Jesus for salvation, and that they would pass from darkness to life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.